Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Retro Encounter. RPG fans, sometimes specific, sometimes non-specific, but never about current events podcast. I'm Mike Solosi, Monsoon on the boards, and I'll be your host for today. And uh, today we have a very interesting crew, since it's, an, it's a number of, I would call, uncommon retro guests, with a few returners and one new one. But I'm going to start off with, returning from the Earthbound episode, Hilary Andreff. Hi everyone, good to be back. And returning from the Confessions episode many moons ago, Nick Ransbottom. Hey, everyone. And returning from the My First RPG episode, I don't even remember when that was, <laughs> Dom Kim. Hello. And making his Retro Encounter debut, grizzled RPG fan veteran, Neil Chandran. Hi, everybody. Now, this is a special episode because, for once, it's tying into something other than other podcasts on the site. You see, earlier this week... We posted a feature called RPG Ensembles, where I want to say, oh, how many were were there? Um, Eight? Nine RPG fan contributors each wrote a mini-feature talking about one of their favorite RPG casts of characters and why that cast is so great. And so the five of us, um, myself and the four guests, each wrote one of those mini-features. Now, Nick... I'm going to pick on you a little bit. Um, this feature, you were one of the architects of it, or per- perhaps the chief architect of it. Um, what sort of um, got you the idea to make this a sort of site-wide mini-project that uh, we wrote over August? Well, you know, I had just come off the heels of finishing the Zodiac Age, which ended up being my favorite Final Fantasy game. And it kind of got me thinking, what made that game so special to me? And it was the cast. And... I just got the idea, you know, what makes an RPG special is its cast. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, we've all played many RPGs over the years, and RPGs are sometimes very long, involved games, and you're going to be spending a lot of time with these characters over the course of a lengthy RPG. So having a cast that you can really identify with or really like spending time with is really, really important. So anyway, when Nick proposed this idea uh, to others on the website, a lot of people got really excited and interested in it, because a lot of us care very deeply about our cast of characters. Would would, would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. (laughs) Of course. Most definitely. And another interesting point is, even what makes casts interesting is, while yes, you know, them being likable or relatable, but even if they aren't very likable or aren't very relatable, but are still just very interesting characters that, that stick in our minds even years after we've been playing. Yeah, a a cast needs to be compelling, I think, uh, in order to succeed. In order for the RPG itself to succeed, you need a compelling cast. And on the flip side, if I find a cast of characters in an RPG particularly annoying or unlikable, why am I playing a 30-plus hour game hanging out with these people? I'm I'm struggling right now a little bit with that, because I'm playing... I've been playing Tokyo Xanadu recently, and I could not give half a rat's ass about these characters. And they want me to talk to them a lot. So, <laughs> spoiler alert, that's not the game I wrote about for the feature. Okay, but before we go and talk about our specific uh, mini-features that we wrote as part of the larger feature, I'm, I want to do a shout-out to the uh, panelists that are not on this podcast who did write bits on, um, on the feature. So, listeners, I encourage you to go to the website, rpgfan.com, and check out the feature and see what everybody wrote. If it's not on the front page anymore, go to the features section on the top bar, and you should dig around and be able to dig around and find it. So, in addition to the five of us, we have Alana Hagues, who wrote on Tales of Vesperia, Nathan Lee, who wrote on Mass Effect 2, East the Othenfel, uh, sorry, Robert Fenner, who wrote on East the Othenfelgana, whoops, and Marcos Gaspar, who wrote on Resonance of Fate. So, uh, we'll be t- discussing our choices and our uh, and the writing that we did on the feature in detail on this episode. But those other four bits are super interesting and well written and entertaining, and you should check the, um, out everyone's work on the main page. So, uh, Neil, we're going to bounce back to you again. You wrote on Final Fantasy VII. Indeed, I did. I feel like, yeah, a lot of people might think, you know, Final Fantasy VII might be like an obvious choice or a popular choice. But for me, that was that was one of the games that really got me like big into playing RPGs. And it's become the cast that I that's my benchmark that I judge other ensemble casts by. Because when I was younger, watching a friend play Final Fantasy VII, to me, it was like this epic anime adventure with you know these amazing characters going through this super epic journey and 
always what struck me was how you know this cast of characters in Final Fantasy VII so disparate, yet they all like are connected. And I feel like if you take one character away from Final Fantasy VII, everything we love about that game would collapse like Jenga. Even the even the uh, less involved characters, like I'm mostly thinking about Yuffie here. <laughs> you know what? I think so too because you know Yuffie has a popu- has become like an important character in her own right. You know, through being in in series like Kingdom Hearts and everything, so she's become like a very identifiable character with Final Fantasy VII. And while yes, her overall storyline might seem tertiary to everyone else's she has a bone to pick with shinra just like everyone else one of and one of my favorite moments in final fantasy 7 was when you know cloud gets over his everything in, in the live stream becomes a more wholehearted person when he sees yuffie puking over the edge of the high wind with motion sickness he t- he gives her tips on how to deal with it so in a sense yuffie helped cloud become like a a more wholehearted person and that's a big reason why i love the cast because each character helped all the others become like fuller people and realize things about themselves like a common theme i think in final fantasy 7 is everybody believes something that's simply not true like you know red believed his father was a coward or eris believed her material was useless but it was through going on this journey with you know these newfound friends that you know helped them get over their hurdles and realize their potential and everything i don't mean to jump in too much but i i thought a lot about that point actually neil that you made in your piece about yuffie and it she really she really does kind of help pull you into FF7. I think she's a really kind of engaging character because she does have that really sweet moment with Cloud and when she steals your materia, you get angry. You know, so she she really she really does a lot to make it engaging. Yeah, and I, I should say I didn't mean to drag Yuffie when I suggested she wasn't as key to the plot as the other characters. because uh, I, I do like her and I like the Wu Tai side quest in particular. But before I go on, I should mention, we are going to spoil the hell out of all five games that we're going to be discussing tonight. So I, I apologize if, I apologize if just someone had uh, a, a part of FF7 ruined for them, but I don't really sympathize because that game is 20 years old now. And we don't, and we don't know like how the remake is going to play out. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. Because, hey, in the old version's ending, Yuffie and Vincent weren't in it. And I hope they're in it this time because even Vincent, even though he was a side character, finding him fills in a huge gap in the plot and he's been a star in his own side games and I'm like he needs to be in the ending in the new version yeah. so does Yuffie yeah Vincent's quite key to the FF7 mythos because he's um he was the lover of Sephiroth's father he was a former member of the Turks organization he's been a big part of the FF7 world uh especially since the release of FF7 since she has he has a pretty large role in Advent Children and he got his own game in Dirge of Cerberus I mean, thinking of Yuffie and Vincent as so close to FF7 now, it's sort of easy to forget that they were secret optional characters that weren't necessarily easy to recruit. Like, I think if you don't know about it ahead of time, I think it's possible to miss the Vincent recruitment quest because it's a a slightly challenging run around this annoying mansion fetch quest, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or am I I remembering it as as more challenging than it actually is? Because it has been several years since I've played FF7. Oh, it was definitely one of those things. You had to do a, you had to do like I think a specific number of things, you know, to make it happen. Yeah, you had to find four numbers that were hidden on invisible slips of paper in a mansion, and then use those to unlock a safe uh, near the end of that sort of mansion dungeon. In the safe is a key, and in the basement is a locked room, and in that locked room is a coffin, and in that coffin is Vincent, and then he joins you if you uh, if you meet him. It, it's not easy to do that quest unless you go a little bit off the beaten path to do it. So it, but it's it's neat thinking that yeah, this character that you th- sort of think of as a big part of FF7 was an optional secret recruit <laughs> technically. But but Neil, I want to ask you one thing that I I didn't really think about in FF7 until I until many years after first playing it. Now it's the first 3D Final Fantasy. The older ones were all uh, uh, sprites on 16- or 8-bit systems. And I, what, one thing that I think is really f- interesting about the FF7 cast is the diversity of the silhouettes. 
in every other FF game, each character was the same size and occupied the same size square or rectangle. But in FF7, now that you're in this 3D space... You have one character that has a cat riding a giant moogle. One character that resembles some kind of dog-lion hybrid. Barret is a, is a much different body type than Cloud or Sid or Tifa. It's just a really diverse collection of silhouettes and, and sort of character types in, in, in that they aren't all human and they aren't all quite the same size. And I, I think that makes FF7 br- uh, break from the old RPG mold more than we realize at first. I agree with you there, and it's not just with the hero characters, even with a lot of the side characters, like, whether whether you see, like, Heidegger being, like, super chubby versus <laughs> Rufus being super slim, it's like, everyone felt like a very distinct person, and, and even thinking, I could not imagine Final Fantasy VII without a lot of those side characters. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it without Heidegger and his crazy evil laugh. Or, like, decades later, we're still remembering them. We're still remembering that, that, that scene where Palmer gets hit by the truck and things like that. I mean, that's what yeah, this feature's all about. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The cast is really memorable, a total classic, even though it's, uh, it, maybe its fan base has diminished my view of the game somewhat over the years. FF7 got overexposed for a while there. I, I still look upon that cast really fondly, and I mean, I can't believe we've gone this far without really mentioning Sephiroth in detail. How about that guy? <laughs> Man. <laughs> and he connects with a lot of those overarching themes, too. Like, he obviously had a beef with the Shinra because the whole thing with Hojo using him as, as a guinea pig and everything. He's also part of that group that ardently believes in something that's completely not true. Like, mm-hmm. He believes he was a descendant of, like, the ancients, that he's, like, something special when he was really just an ultra-powerful science experiment. Yep, he was a regular human person that was experimented on with some crazy alien cells and then told he was a a, a scion of an ancient powerful race, which is probably not true. We don't need to get into the, (laughs) is Cloud Zack, is Zack Cloud, is is Sephiroth an ancient... Those are forum arguments that have been going on for 20 years that we don't need to dig into in this podcast. But But, going on for 20 years. (laughs) Yes, that is right, they have been. Yeah, and... And they're still going on, so these characters had a huge impact on an entire generation. That is absolutely true. Now, um, Nick and Dom, you've both been a little quiet, and I, I know that you're both significantly younger than I, than I am, at least. So, uh, have have both of you pl- have either or both of you played FF Seven? Uh, starting with you, Nick. I knew you would pick me. I knew you would pick up on this. I, I, no, I, I have just not. Asking a simple question. No, I have not. I, I own it on the PS4. Okay. Uh, I played it when it was released, when I was a little older and still had a PS1, uh, but I've never beaten it. So okay. I have no idea what's being talked about right now. That's fine. And uh, and you and you now, too, Dom, have you played that... FF7 before? Uh, I have not. I mean, I watched my sister play it on, like, emulators and stuff, but I've not played through it myself. Okay. So. All right. <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to shame you or anything for now, but uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's it's cool. I mean, uh, FF7 does have a great cast, and it is regarded as a classic by just about everyone that's played it. So, I mean, of course, I recommend it. I'm sure Neil recommends it since he, uh, he since he wrote like what seven bar, seven bars on it. So something like that. And I hope you know me geeking out over this game didn't like either overhype it for you or spoil it for you or anything like that no it actually makes <laughs> oh. me want to play it mission accomplished then maybe i'll pipe that in the the that victory theme in that spot we'll see so anyway final fantasy 7 excellent cast excellent villains i you know what sort of what before we sign off on it, one last thing about Sephiroth that sort of still surprises me is how little you see of him at the beginning of the game. Yes. At the, in the first disc, or maybe the first half of the first disc, Sephiroth is almost like Jaws, in that he's this scary, invisible presence that you never really see. Like, you, you don't see him until the... what he looks like until the flashback in Calm. But when you're going through Midgar, you hear about is the greatest soldier ever, and then he sort of went AWOL. And then you see that, that whole... Uh, uh, Everyone in the Shinra building murdered brutally with uh, his sword sticking out of the out of the president. 
So it, for a while, Sephiroth is scary and impactful for not being there, and then once he makes his formal introduction, he's one of the most memorable RPG villains ever. That whole approach to him still impresses me in 2017. Oh, without a doubt. All right, so we've established Sephiroth is Jaws. Now we're going to move on to a different game and a different cast. Dom, let's talk about Borderlands yeah. 2 for a while. Now, again, sure. before, before we begin in earnest, we are probably going to spoil a lot of Borderlands 2 audience, so prepare yourselves or maybe skip ahead a few minutes. Dom, what, what made you decide to write on the cast of Borderlands 2, and maybe what is your, what's one or two things about the cast that you, you've, makes you feel that they really shine? Um, sure. So just to give a bit of context... Right around the time, like, first picked up Borderlands 2, I was getting a little sort of, like, burnt out with, like, the standard RPG fare of, like, oh, this, like, villain who's, like, super evil, and then, like, you have this group of heroes that you have to, like, that you just, you know, you play for, like, 30 hours to beat. It was just getting really sort of monotonous. One of the things that stuck out to me about Borderlands 2 was that it just, it sort of, like, follows the same basic plot, but... It just spices us up so much because, like, the absolute highlight of Borderlands 2 for anyone playing probably is Handsome Jack, who is the main villain of the game. And the thing with Handsome Jack is that he is just insane. Like, it, <laughs> like in the most literal sense of the word, there's no, like, facade of, like, pretending to be good or, like, trying to, like, mind games the main cast or, like, there's none of that. He's just flat-out crazy and you can tell already from, like, the first settlement that you re- arrive at in Borderlands. And you're getting, like, shot up by bandits and, like, your low-level gear. And you're, like, struggling just to survive. He just casually calls you over the intercom because he's, like, on a space station, like, off-planet. And he's like, hey, I just bought a pony and I named him Butt Stallion. I just thought you should know. <laughs> and then, like, this it's, like, from that point. Of- I, yeah. I remember that call. <laughs> yeah, and he's like... Yeah, I <laughs> And he's like, I just played at him in just, like, pure diamonds, and you should probably just know that before you die, because I'm so much more important than you. Already from there, like, the charisma that Handsome Jack gives off is very sort of, like, appealing, and it was very different from what I was, like, just playing through at the time. So that's, like, what really caught my attention. The fact that he was also just so different from the Borderlands 1 main villain, who was was Commandant Steel. And she was the head of another, like, evil corporation. But she was much more of, like, just, like, a stock villain. You know, thick Russian accent. Threatens to kill you every other intercom in, like, brutal ways. Tells you to give up. But Handsome Jack just, like, he drops in and he's like, you know, you're going to die eventually anyways. So I might as well just have, like, this casual chit-chat with you. Yeah, it's that sort of charisma that really, like, ingrained him into my mind as, like, a very strong villain. I, I should mention, I haven't played yeah. much Borderlands 1 or 2, only mm-hmm. only split-screen on other people's copies. And yeah. one thing that uh, jumped out at me a little bit from your description, you really think that comparing the first game to the second game, the, se- the, the characters and personality of the second game made it that much better and more memorable? I mean, yeah, that's definitely part of it. I mean, I think the cast, just like on their own, are pretty good, but it was just such a massive improvement for Borderlands 1. That... Okay. I thought it was worth mentioning, you know. And, and well, uh, and Borderlands, I guess both of the games are uh, loot RPGs where you choose a player character at the beginning, and that's your main for that whole run. That's I'm, it, There's no character switching or changing, right? I'm, I, yeah. Okay. Yep. So what's the difference between running through the game as the different characters? Do you really get a, a sense of the story being different or the personality being different? I mean, Cause, I cause think that, the... I mean, as a, as a Diablo player, I think that... Yeah. For non for non gameplay reasons, there isn't enough of a meaningful difference in the different in the different Diablo characters to make it a, a really different feeling experience. But is is um, so is it different for Borderlands too? Uh, oh, do you mean like in terms of like story experience or um, just like game? More more personality and getting to know the characters. Oh, well, in that sense, it's like not that different from Borderlands One okay. because it's like in the end, like Borderlands Two, it still is sort of just an FPS. And, like, you can only get, like, so attached to a character, I think, and from, like, just playing from that perspective. And it doesn't help that, like, most of the time the dialogue's just, like, one-liners and stuff. But one of the things that I think Borderlands 2 did really well was they do really good tie-ins from the first game as well. Like, all the main characters from the first game make an appearance. Like, they've grown so much beyond what they were in the first game. Oh, that's like, cool. 
in the first game, they were just, like, really bland, and they just, like, you know, just yell, like, cheesy one-liners and stuff. But in the second game, Mordecai, who was, like, the sniper character, he's become sort of, like, an alcoholic shooting, and he's just, like, on top of a mountain, accidentally starts, like, sniping you when you first enter the area and stuff. Okay. You know, Roland and Lilith, they become, like, strong leaders of the resistance against Handsome Jack. Rick has become basically just, like, a meme at that point, but he's just become like the meathead that he was but like it's like with a lot of charisma as well and yeah i think that's one of the things that borderlands 2 does really well is that like pandora is just like a flat out just crazy world where people have just gone completely insane and borderlands 2 like takes that to heart because it in borderlands 1 i felt a lot more of so like hesitation there was like i could feel sort of feel like the gearbox writers being like should we like just go like completely crazy or should we like keep this sort of like semi-serious at least? But Borderlands 2 just like throws that out the window and they just go like, they just go all out. So I, I guess um, Handsome Jack is sort of the, the crazy despot of the world is sort of in a way a reflection of how crazy Pandora is, would you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly uh, with you talking about how Borderlands 2 is a little more wacky and has a little bit more personality compared to 1, uh, in the original Borderlands... The art style was supposed to be a little more serious, right? Like, initially? Yeah, yeah. In the very early E3 demos, Borderlands had, like, straight-up just 3D graphics. Before yeah, it was almost... a shaded look. Yeah. They, I think they switched to the yeah, the comic book style art, like, very last second. Oh, so it didn't always have that stylized look that, yeah. I, that I basically think of as being key to Borderlands. <laughs> yeah, no, originally pretty much. it kind of looked like Mad Max in a way. Huh. Yeah. yeah, you remember? And when I think of Borderlands now, that's that's kind of what I think of. Yeah, same here, because I've never played any of the Borderlands games, but when I think about Borderlands 2, I just think wonderfully cuckoo characters, because, you know, when I used to try and, like, interview voice actors, one voice actress I wanted to interview was Ashley Birch, who was not only Chloe in Life is Strange, but she was tiny tina in borderlands <laughs> 2 and and, and yeah. in order for me to learn a bit more about the character i'm watching like youtube clips and i'm like oh my goodness this tiny tina is wonderfully cuckoo i don't i i, I wonder if ashley birch had to do like a million takes on some of those lines like because if it were me i'd be cracking up at like every piece of dialogue i'd have to do yeah, tiny tina's a very polarizing character but yeah i like her too polarizing yeah people either like love her or they just like despise her they just think huh. she's like the most annoying character but i think she's like wonderful she's i was under the impression that she was well liked because i remember the i remember the hype around her because was there an expansion or some dlc centered yeah. around her she had her own dlc right i remember when that came out everyone was really excited for it and thought she was hysterical and i i also thought she was hysterical from the advertisements i saw tiny tino's just a little bit off the hook. <laughs> Delightfully yeah, arranged. Right. But that's another interesting thing, you know, when a character does get that sort of reception where some people have a strong reaction, like, whether it's a large or small group, you know, some people react strongly one way and then other people are really excited. Yeah, exactly. A, a strong reaction is better than a weak reaction. And, yeah. um, I, I mean, Tiny Tina might be the best version of that where I, I, would, I would say that probably more than half of the fan base likes her versus hates her. But it, but if they feel intensely about it in both directions, that's that's almost what you want the most. Yeah, <laughs> people to feel strongly about it, whether positive or negative. Yeah, that's another thing. I feel like that it's side characters in Borderlands to also do a really good job of just establishing the universe. Like Tiny Tina is one of them, definitely. And another one that I wrote about in the article was also there's a side quest that you take later on, right around near where you first meet Brick. It's just a bandit. And his name is Face McShooty. The quest consists of you shooting him in the face. Like he gives you like money for that as well. The entire time he's screaming at you to like shoot him in the face. It's like I don't like I don't know. It wasn't like the quest is over like immediately because you just shoot him in the face with like a rocket launcher or something. But it's just these like small moments created by these side characters that like this is what Pandora is. You know, people have just gotten absolutely bonkers here. And like, I, th like, I think I think after this podcast records, I'm gonna go on a YouTube search for the ballad of Face McShooty. 
Because <laughs> I, I, I need I need to see some version of this character in action because I was I was not aware of the, of his legend before Don yeah. telling us this tale. Yeah, there better is, be a ballad. Yeah, it is. It's like it's like completely random too. You're just like crossing a bridge and like off to like uh, I think it's like the left. You hear some bandit screaming, "Shoot me in the face!" And you're just like, "What is going on here?" If, if I experience if I experience that organically in the game, I would remember Face McShooty too. I think. <laughs> yeah. With the case of a of Face McShooty, it's how even like these these smaller side characters add so much to just the overall ensemble. Like, you know what? I don't think any of us can now imagine Borderlands Two without Face McShooty. <laughs> If I were to start playing Borderlands 2 from scratch, which probably won't, but may happen, I would definitely be on the lookout for Face McShooty. And if I heard someone screaming to shoot himself in the face, I would sprint to his location. So, uh, would anyone object if I started talking about Persona 4 at length? Because that's something I will do at a moment's notice, whether no matter what the podcast topic is. <laughs> Everything is Go great ahead. at your Junas. Indeed it is. So, I wrote about Persona 4... We had an entire Persona 4 episode over a year ago on this podcast. When the the idea for this feature came up, I immediately went to Persona 4, in part because I adore its cast of characters, especially the sort of eight main characters, but also because I think that the mechanics of Persona 4 and the story of Persona 4 unusually serve its cast specifically. I even got a little weird in my writing. I wrote more about how you meet the each character and the arc of the game and about the characters themselves, which I was, I was concerned was a problem. But uh, in, in Persona 4, basically this one arc happens five or six times. The story of the game, which is going to be spoiled to hell and back during this segment, is that there's a serial killer on the loose, and, there's a, and what the serial killer is doing is attached to this mysterious world called the Midnight Channel, which you access by jumping into television screens. One by one, you're trying to prevent more murders from occurring. So when someone disappears and enters the Midnight Channel, you and your friends try to locate them before that person can be killed by their own shadow. And their their shadow refers to basically a manifestation of the part of themselves that they hate the most. <laughs> Which is a lot, a lot to break down, to take in if you haven't played Persona 4 before. Uh, but So anyway, um, you, you find the kidnapped person... Uh, you, you defeat their shadow, which is, again, the thing that part about themselves they hate the most. And then after the shadow's defeated, the person that you rescued accepts that the shadow is part of them. They gain powers and then join your team. Because recruiting each of the main characters involves literally them confronting their biggest weaknesses and then accepting them. I mean, just, just by playing Persona 4, you're seeing each of these characters go through a major turning point. Where at first you, you see their their sort of facade outer self, you see the the part of themselves they hate the most, and then you and then they sort of spend the rest of the game as this more complete person and your friend and ally. I went into Kanji as an example in my in my written piece uh, pretty deeply, but that basically happens for every of each one of the major characters other than the main character. I felt like I was really close to those seven teenagers and one mysterious interdimensional bear cartoon <laughs> and uh and and part of why was because i saw them go uh through each of these very human experiences framed in a very weird shadowy demony shin Megami tensei lens yeah i was gonna say you know for me personally persona 4 is one of those games where i did not want to finish it because i didn't want to say goodbye to the cast you grow to love them just so much yeah, definitely. And I think that mechanism of seeing them coping, then having to confront their issue, their shadow self, and then moving toward being, I mean, that's a huge growth process. And that's something you can really get on board with. And it's kind of uplifting to, to watch. And another thing I really liked was, I wasn't just going through dungeons and doing, you know, fighting battles alongside these characters. I was hanging out with them, like doing, you know, regular Teen Beat stuff, you know, going to school with them, hanging out at the mall with them, you know, studying for exams together. So it was almost like I was, you know, back in high school, chilling with my friends, doing that stuff too, while also, you know, going on this epic adventure. So it almost made them seem like more wholehearted people that way because because it's like seeing you know the person as a warrior is one thing but just as you know an average teenager trying to deal with trying to ask a girl out or something you know that that's great too 
yeah, it, Persona three, four, and five have that whole loop of sometimes you're fighting demons in a weird in a weird supernatural space, and the rest of the time you're living your life as a normal teen in high school, except you have demon superpowers. And and you're right, like you, you see the char- um, the main cast at least fighting alongside you like warriors, and also you just hang out with them. But both when you're trying to solve the mystery of the serial killer, and just in your free time when you know there isn't someone to rescue, you basically can choose who you spend your time with and in and that in and this is true for persona 3 4 and 5 but focusing on 4 um, unless you're you know checking game facts and trying to get a max playthrough in general you choose who you hang out with and what you do with your time being able to see the, your the main cast and, and every and all the other crazy characters in Inaba you get to maybe you know pick your favorites maybe like, the ones you like the most, you can spend the most time with. The ones you don't like them very much, you can j- decide to ignore them. And that level of sort of player efficacy makes you feel closer to the characters and setting in Persona 4. But, but also, I mean, can we at least agree, Kanji's the best one? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no Kanji, doubt about it. Yeah, Kanji's a personal favorite of mine. Yeah. Kanji's great. One of the best characters in RPGs, I would say. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay that out there. I, I in think general, one of the best. <laughs> one of my favorite moments in Persona 4 is probably when he first reacts to his shadow. Like, after he comes to, after oh, yeah. it's <laughs> I, I wrote about this a little bit. The shadows that you confront aren't exactly typically Japanese RPG problems. Uh, Kanji questions his sexuality, and Naoto questions her uh, gender identity. And, uh, like, as such, Kanji, who's concerned he might be gay, which I, I'm not sure is the best way to frame that, but his shadow is a very flamboyant, very forward gay stereotype. And Kanji re- refuses to admit that anything that, that looks and acts like that could be part of him. <laughs> yeah. And I like Kanji because I can relate in a way, because even as a kid growing up, I mean, I was always a real sensitive kid, so I always preferred playing, like, pretend games with girls rather than roughhousing with the boys. So when it would be like, yeah, yeah, you're not a boy, you're a girl, and things like that. And, <laughs> you know, seeing, like, Kanji kind of go through that, it was like, bro, I hear you, man. And that's why even even now, even as an adult... I'm still, like, trying to show that I'm tough and I'm strong and that I can ride bicycles 50 miles. Yeah, and, and I mean, and Kanji's uh, core conflict, where he questions his uh, his sexuality and has a, and isn't and feels embarrassed by his quote-unquote feminine hobbies since, since Kanji likes sewing and, and likes playing with dolls and be, being ridiculed for that made him, uh, made him sort of overcompensate to act like this big, tough delinquent when that's not really who he is. That is not a common RPG problem. Do you know any other RPGs, or games in general, but RPGs in particular, that are that critical of toxic masculinity? It's remarkable, and um, which why I, and, and because Kanji is so likable and even funny when he has comic moments, his sort of conflict being unique to JRPGs, or at least feeling unique to JRPGs, made him so memorable and likable to me. I, I, I adore Kanji. I like, I like most of the Persona 4 cast, but Kanji's the best one. Yeah, unfortunately, Persona 4 did give us Teddy, so there's that that we have to deal with. I like cool. Teddy's uh, Teddy's struggle to you know to know what he is. I think is not a bad angle. That's true. He actually does have a good arc. He's just annoying. Yeah, us. yeah, oh. no, yeah, exactly. In the uh, in the, the non-story segments or the non-questioning the very nature of his being <laughs> segments, he is super <laughs> annoying. I I have to admit, his shadow is probably my favorite. Like. <laughs> I love his yeah. sort of existential arc. Yeah, I was pretty interested and entertained when his shadow showed up. Yeah, but still, his puns were unbearable. Oh, man. Yeah, but I will... it's like it's like having Josh on an episode again. <laughs> but I will admit, but I will admit though, I did chuckle a little when I first saw his persona because because his persona Kintoki Doji apparently is a Japanese deity that has a tomahawk as a weapon. But Teddy's persona was holding a tomahawk missile, yeah. so the, that pun made me. Che- and and it looks like a big, I don't know, like a, like a big bowling ball or water tower or something with a scarf. It's the, the designs in Persona Four are out of control. When you fight Yukiko's shadow, she feels like that she's imprisoned by uh, by the expectations of her family. So her shadow that you fight as a boss battle is literally a caged bird. There's a lot of interesting visual choices in that game that I think serve the cast a little bit. But all, but also it has pretty cool characters or an interesting cast outside of the main eight. 
I mean, who doesn't love Dojima and Nanako? Best. Oh, yeah. They're Especially I mean... Dojima. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, Nick. <laughs> now, when, um, and and Nanako is your, is your uh, adorable elementary school-age cousin, and the strongest emotion I felt the entire game was when Nanako gets captured in the late-game dungeon, and I'm like, oh, you mofo, we are ending this now. And I just, oh, I was just, it is on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You made the mistake of your life, Namatame. And that's a very, like, general feeling. Which is a huge credit to the Persona forecast too. But but yeah, I mean yeah, even outside the playable characters, you know, with Persona three, four, and five, you cannot think of the cast without thinking about the social links. Mm, yep, it, like I mentioned earlier, um, you sort of choose who you can spend your time with in Persona four, and that's also true of three, four, and five. And there's these really rich, interesting casts that you can meet at, when you're exploring all around town. And I don't know, I'm still hoping for a future crossover game where uh, Sojiro from Persona 5 is running his coffee shop and just hangs out with Dojima and the monk from Persona 3 all day. Yes. And just, they just all just hang out and drink coffee. I want to play that game. <laughs> I, I would play that game. Nah, I, I think that monk would, you know, put a shot of bourbon in his coffee. You say that like it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, alright, we like Persona 4 a lot. Dom, you've been a little quiet. Have you played Persona 4? Uh, I do not have any of the PlayStations available right oh, now, I so I've not, you know. It's a pretty good use of your time if you have 90 hours to spare, which <laughs> which maybe you don't. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> We're going to move on to our next game now, and that is Kudelka from Miss Hilary Andreff. Now, oh Kudel- Kudelka is it's it's one of my white whale games, I would say, because for a while I was trying to buy or play or borrow every Persona, every Persona, whoops, I just got Persona on the brain, I'm sorry, <laughs> every PlayStation 1 RPG, and Kudelka's one that's particularly hard to find. I understand that it's sort of a predecessor or prequel to the Shadow Hearts games on PS2, which are really yeah. cool, but I, other than that, I don't know a lot about it. I think, and Roger Bacon from Shadow Hearts is in it, right? Yes, he plays okay. a pretty big role, pretty significant role in, in Kudelka as well. Okay, so, um, Start from an open-ended position, I guess. Talk a little bit about your process, choosing why you chose Kadelka and what you, was going through your brain when you were writing the feature, and maybe some of the strong points about Kadelka's cast. Okay. The first thing I'll say is I was kind of wrestling with the choice, picking a game like Kadelka for a while. I really wasn't sure about it until I got encouragement from other people who have played the game, actually. So that was a big part of my process. I think part of that is because it, it is a less well-known game, but another part of that was it's it's also a very experimental game, and its cast and the way everything's put together is kind of different. It's not your typical RPG cast, RPG story. It's it's a bit different. I ultimately decided that's, that's actually a good thing. I think what they did with the cast really opened up um, how we view RPG casts, not only in its, you know, successors, the Shadow Hearts games, but kind of across the board. The other part of why I chose it is the strength of the cast itself. I mean, the writing in the game is really good, so that helps. But the characters themselves, I mean, what appealed to me is they go they go through a really interesting process of being in a situation in a, in a haunted monastery where at least two of the three of them aren't really sure what's going on. Uh, they're in a very vulnerable position. I, I, I want to ask you, Kudelka and I guess Shadow Hearts as well have a very twisted gothic occult setting, and they yeah. lean and they lean pretty hard into that setting and go into some horror themes. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, because again, I I've played Shadow Hearts, but not Kudelka. And do you think that the uh, that the cast is sort of served by that setting, and that it's it's all you know, it, it's pretty cohesive as a whole? Yeah, actually, and that's part of the reason why I chose the cast because all of that's woven together so well, and I think the cast through the writing, really does kind of bring everything together in a very RPG-like, satisfying story. But yeah, it is, I think one thing I say in my piece is that just looking at Kadalka, it feels a lot more like a survival horror game than it does an RPG, because you've got your psychic character, one of the other characters is a baron, you know, and the other's kind of an 1800s fortune-seeker adventurer kind of type of guy, and they're in a they're in a haunted monastery in Wales, and you learn pretty quickly once the game starts that they're 
really terrifying looking kind of unholy monsters in this monastery and something yeah, very wrong. Yeah, the monsters in Shadowheart's Covenant are such a twisted bunch. It started it, with Tadelka. Oh, man. Oh, man. So, yeah. so they, they really lean into that, that horror vibe sometimes, I'm guessing. Yeah, they do. But it's really the interactions between the characters. Like, I, I sort of, in my piece, describe it as this process of bickering and not really being able to see each other's point of view at first to learning to kind of work around that and figuring out a way, despite that, to kind of work together and ultimately seeing that there's something larger at stake and in the end all making a decision that ultimately cleanses the monastery versus some other side characters who are also interesting who in the past had made some kind of more selfish decisions that caused the problem in the first place well it's okay we're, we're in a spoiler free environment here so you can name, <laughs> you can you can name names and go into details is, is there one character a hero or a villain that maybe uh stands out the most maybe like steals a lot of scenes because you're, you're telling me that the dialogue's really good and these characters are memorable, but uh, I, I want an example. <laughs> Come on. All right, all right, all right. I'm, um, I'm not going to go into YouTube to look for Kadelka dialogue during podcast recording. Fair. <laughs> I think I'm way too used to not giving spoilers, so sorry nope. about that. Nope, <laughs> spoilers are... This is a spoiler-free zone. I, uh, I, would, I would use harsh language to say so, but this is a PG-rated podcast, <laughs> allegedly. Okay. And this actually goes back to one of the reasons why I was unsure about this game in the first place, because the bickering in the dialogue kind of indicates that none of the characters are really particularly nice individuals. And uh, the standout in that respect is definitely James O'Flaherty, the bishop. He's a pretty awful person. Um, <laughs> is he one of the player characters or an NPC? Yes, yes he is. He is your last player character, and okay. you find him unconscious save him and instead of being grateful he basically accuses Kadolka and Edward the other player characters of you know raiding the monastery and being these you know awful low lives <laughs> and he goes into a long spiel about it it's just it's kind of unbelievable and then he refuses to believe that the caretakers of the monastery are up to any wrongdoing even though Kadolka and Edward have clear evidence that they tried to poison them <laughs> and he's just like no they you know they act like good people they're fine you're worse than they are kind of attitude because Kadelka's uh some kind of witch and yeah and, because she's a psychic and not religious right and the other guy is sort of a maybe a ne'er-do-well some kind of adventurer rakish dude yeah uh, rakish right. dude definitely so okay a, a witch and a rake do not go over very well to, with a bishop <laughs> who is who is no. who is having his you know vision of what the church is challenged <laughs> completely but you also find out that James is bigoted, which is terrible. Like, they run into an actual... No. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Shocking. So so does he undergo a character turn? Or um, is, does he stay some, like, a, a curmudgeon that hates his companions through the whole game? Because I'm not sure which I would like better, because both sound <laughs> all right. That's actually a very interesting question, because he seems to grow a bit more tolerant and willing to accept help. Like, in the end... Kadelka actually uses her power. She needs to use her power to channel someone who is who James is very close to, and he allows that, which is really surprising based on how he acted before. So he grows a little bit more tolerant, but you kind of get the impression that his his underlying personality and belief structure are not going to come tumbling down. And depending on which ending of the game you get, because there are there are different endings. One of them, he actually sacrifices himself to cleanse the monastery. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you're not really sure whether this that's because this woman, Elaine, that he had been very close with and had wanted to marry, but gave it up because there was someone with higher status. You know, he's very kind of like hierarchical, authoritarian sort of guy. So he just thought the higher status person should have her. She basically becomes a monster because the guy she married tried to use the monastery to bring her back after she gets murdered by bandits. Yeah, I, I think uh, at least the first two Shadowhearts games have very, very specific ideas on the problems surrounding bringing the dead back to life. Yes. So, and, and, and so, um, Kadelka, the, the game, not, not the character, do, does explore that in, in detail. Um, I guess in the previous three segments, we each talked about uh, memorable villains in the game. So is there a... Uh, a villain in Kadelka that stands out and maybe uh, and maybe choose some scenery because you know I love a good scenery chewing villain. <laughs> I, I mean, I, di I didn't even talk about Adachi in Persona Four, but uh, <laughs> um, he he needs his own podcast probably. 
so I, I would say that's mostly James that does that stuff. Like there's some early lines of him and Edward where Edward quotes Byron and and James's reactions. You would like Lord Byron. He's unrefined. Blah blah blah. I like Alexander Pope. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, some romantic poet beef going on. That's that's yeah, intense. It is, <laughs> and, it, and it continues because later on Edward quotes Shakespeare, and James goes, "Hmm, well, that's better." All right, I have a slightly higher opinion of you now because you quoted Shakespeare. Like it's it's kind of ridiculous, but fun. It's it's uncommon um, where you see a Japanese RPG go into English literary humor, but I appreciate this. <laughs> yeah. I'm, in, I'm yeah. into it. And and what and what's interesting is it sounds like each of these characters are almost their own worst enemies. So that's it's, yeah. That... It's almost like the villain is not some big external demon, but the darkness lurking in themselves. Yeah. Maybe they should jump into the TV world and confront their own shadows. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh. That, that, uh, no, I don't no. think that would end well. <laughs> no. so that, I, I'd that buy was... that DLC, just saying, in either of yes. these games. Yes. True. <laughs> so the same woman was kind of a benefactor of the caretakers, as well as married to James's friend. The caretakers were kind of working with James's friend to try and bring her back to life, and they just, yeah, they end up doing some really ghastly, grisly things any anyone who's familiar with shadow hearts in the emigre manuscript oh yeah we'll have an idea of what i'm talking about so i mean as far as like gruesome the villains are interesting and but i would say the most interesting thing is the choices that james's friend who who married elena's patrick and then the caretakers it's interesting because their choices their choice to kind of ultimately be selfish and kind of do the thing they shouldn't by trying to resurrect someone you know that that seems to be the real like evil in this game versus Cadelka, Edward, and James, who are very, very flawed, but make a different choice. You know, they choose to right the wrongs and try and atone for those past mistakes. This game really needs to get remade because I, I mean, it's it's still hard to get a copy of Cadelka out there. I don't I don't think it's available on any digital services. If it, but if it's on PSN, please correct me. I would love to be wrong about that. This main trio sounds like they have some really interesting banter and some real interesting problems. Yeah, they do. Damn it, I still want to play that thing. Mm. <laughs> For a while there, I was eBaying basically every JRPG of note on the PS1 and trying to buy all of them. And even some RPGs not of note, like your, oh, like your Beyond the Beyonds or your Thousand Armses. Beyond the Beyond is terrible. They, it's a good thing that team got over themselves and made good games like Golden Sun. But, any, but anyway... Kadelka, dark gothic fantasy horror RPG, which is a bunch of cool adjectives before RPG. <laughs> and and you wrote a really interesting piece for the feature that I that made me even thirstier to play that game, even though awesome. I'm never I'm not sure I'll ever be able to get my hands on it. Alright, do you mind if I quickly share how I got my copy? Oh Kedelka? please, please. Go for it. Spe- so, hit me. Okay. So I ended up getting it while I was in college, actually, because I have a really good friend back in Colorado who saw it at Goodwill. But... And, and yeah, yeah, for like $15 and said, wait a minute, I know this is with the Shadow Hearts games. Happy birthday! And I was like... <gasps> you found it at a Goodwill? Yeah. As a gift? Yeah. Oh. No yeah. way! Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, he found it and... It was my birthday present. Man, if that happened wow, to me, I probably, I probably would have fainted, and they would have raised the price while I was unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> but still, you never know where you're going to find hidden treasures. Like, nope. I remember, like, many years ago, I went to a yard sale. It was a Japanese family that was living across the street from me, and, you know, I practiced my Japanese with them, and I got my hands on some really awesome Japanese mangas. And I've heard of people getting, you know, really great games at, like, yard sales and stuff, so you just never know where you're going to find good stuff. I mean, the internet and eBay and Craigslist have sort of uh, killed, you know, like, the yard sale hunts and the thrift store hunts of finding rare things, I think, to a degree. But still, when you can can get a coup like that, it's an excellent uh, capitalism story, I guess we could call it that. (laughs) (laughs) And the bottom line is... I think we all want to play Kudelka now. Yeah. I definitely do. Um, I mean, <laughs> you ain't kidding. I got to play that, and I got to play the rest of the Shadow Hearts games because I've only really finished uh, Covenant. Yeah, Kudelka, super interesting game that I I definitely want to play, and it's just unfortunately rare. 
And I, I, uh, I, I, I wish, I wish I could have gotten my hands on it somehow. Cause I, but I never saw it drop under 80 bucks on eBay when I was trying to buy all the PS1 games in the mid 2000s. I do have to add one last caveat because Kadoka is so experimental. I mean, it is slow and there are a lot of kind of gameplay related issues. So does it have a, a bad random encounter rate like Shadow Hearts Covenant does? It's not quite that bad. Okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> but I heard I heard there's breakable weapons, and I know that can oh, sometimes boy. turn off people. Oh my god! I that is how I end my piece. Actually, I think these <laughs> characters kind of make it worth it when you have weapons that break all the time and slow, slow battles. Oh, that's some Zelda PTSD right there. <laughs> Breath of the Wild's PTSD. So. Alright, that's four games down and one to go. We teased this one at the beginning of the episode, but Nick Ramsbottom, the architect of the RPG cast and characters feature, wrote on Final Fantasy XII, which is a game that is very relevant to this podcast interest at the moment, which I'll admit I'll talk about a little later. So Nick, um, you mentioned that you finished uh, FF12 The Zodiac Age recently. Yeah, I reviewed it for us. Yeah, right, right. I'm trying, but that is that is what it's called, Zodiac Age. It's not a different. Zodiac. Yeah, Zodiac yeah. Age. And you obviously enjoyed it very much. So, what about the cast jumped out at you and made you want to write about it? And well, you get your spiel started. Um, break it down for us a little. You know, I think what I liked about this cast the most <clears throat> has to do with the story, uh, and that's there's this theme of loss throughout each of these characters. Vaughn and Pinello have lost their families and this war that's tearing the kingdom apart. Ash has lost her fiancé and her father and her actual kingdom. Bosch has lost his honor and his respect within the kingdom. Bavier has essentially lost his father, his past, too, and Fran as well. Uh, you find out that she has lost her entire clan. Oh, uh, quick pause. I mean, spoilers be here, be wary. Un- un- unpause, continue, Nick. Okay. <laughs> so there's that element of loss throughout each of these characters. And I just, I thought the way it was handled was so nicely done. They grow to rely on each other too. Um, and that's something that I thought was special. I'm always a sucker for these stories of characters who find their own definition of family or, you know, find that family is defined by love and not blood. And they, they grow to care about each other. Uh, Buffier actually becomes a big moral compass for Ash, which comes kind of out of nowhere. And then that ties into Buffier's arc himself. And it's just the, their interactions, everything, it's just expertly done. All right. Now, I should mention, I like FF12, but it's maybe not one of my absolute favorite Final Fantasy games. I, and I, I think that part of FF12's cast are strong, but you probably see where this is going, Nick. What what do you think about Vaughn and Pinello? Because they seem a little bit like passengers to the rest of the team's conflict. Because it's really, I think, the other four that pilot the story along for the most part. At least to me, when I played FF12 years ago, that Vaughn and Pinello seemed a little forgettable or a why-are-they-still-here kind of thing going on with them. You, prob- you probably don't necessarily agree with that. I would say that's maybe a, uh, maybe a common complaint about them. So, so, so what, are your th- what are your thoughts on Van and Pinello in general? What, what do they bring to the, store, to the table as characters? They're more of the audience character. You know, you, as the audience, see the world through them. You're going to these new locations. You're having these new experiences that they're also having for the first time. But I do agree they don't really have a very substantial arc. They get a very happy ending that makes it it's some good payoff. And I still maintain that the only weak link in the entire cast was Vane. But Vaughn and Pinello, compared to the other four, are very boring. There's no getting around it. But I do think they bring something to the table. The whole aspect of, you know, war kills people, obviously. And exploring the loss of how that, that impacts civilians, you couldn't have that without Vaughn and Pinello. And Vaughn's arc of losing his brother ties into Ash's arc of losing her fiancé. So those two end up connecting. Everyone bonds over their grief in some aspect, and they connect with each other through that way. Yeah, because even thinking about what you're saying, like... Like, Mike, I w- when I played FF12, I was with you that it felt like Vaughn and Pinello were almost like side characters 
and the real story was mostly Ash's arc because felt like she was more the main character. But then reflecting back, Vaughn and Pinello are almost like just the common people who are getting affected by all these big sweeping decisions that the kings and queens and princesses are doing. So it's almost like kind of seeing a grand conflict through, say, the eyes of someone lower on the totem pole than, like, the main character. Yeah. Absolutely. And Penelope herself, she her arc ties in with Larsa, who is Vane's brother. And Larsa's big arc is that he's trying to prove the Empire isn't evil, that they can be civil, that they can work together, uh, they can restore Dalmasca. And it's through Pinello that he realizes, oh, these people are terrified of my brother because he's crazy and he's evil. So they definitely have their part to play in the story, even if their part happens to be less enticing compared to the other four cast members. Yeah, I, I think on reflection, Ron and Pinello kind of make FF12 feel more to me like one of the Ivalice games. Almost. Well, I mean, it kind is of, an evil East game, sort of. Yeah, no, 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 I know, but it, that sort of, like, bird's-eye view, this is how everyone's being effective sort of perspective versus some other Final Fantasies, which are a little bit different focus. I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah um, and that's why I'll defend them. One thing that um, is true of both FF12 and FF Tactics is that a lot of the sort of big-picture story takes place behind the scenes and is in sort of details and not and not clear text, I would say. And and it's to the detriment in FFT in FF Tactics because to, to get the whole story you have to you have to read basically the the 1998 equivalent of Codex, which is not, not a great way of doing it. But in in FF12, I was a little surprised by the sort of the political side of the story in the second half of the game, where characters would seem to just appear and then disappear. You only see them in two scenes. I can't remember his name, but uh, the guy who has a maid. Who is like a, a prince or an emissary of the of the kingdom oh, Damascus fighting? Um, uh, do you know who I mean? I, you're not thinking of Ash's uncle, are you? I, I don't. I don't think so. He, no. He had, he had really like, fabulous hair. Oh, I'm shit. trying to think of who you're thinking of. Um, are you sure you're not thinking of Vane? I I might be thinking of Vane. Maybe, maybe the, maybe the main villain, the one with the no, silver no, no. hair. He only shows up in like two or three scenes, and he has a maid, and he's trying to negotiate with Ash for a uh, for a for a resolution to the war, but he only shows up a couple times. I think he, he shows up in the uh, the castle in the icy area first. Oh, man, I feel like I I, I played this game so long ago. <laughs> oh, you're thinking of... I forget his name, but he's like a prophet of some kind. A prophet? I thought he was, I, like, I, a, I thought he was like a diplomat. I, I thought he was... Oh, boy, I may, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail probably if I'm no, wrong. No, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that... Please direct your hate mail towards me because I'm the one that does not remember FF12's story as well as I should. Um, I, neither do I, as well as I should. Um, I know who you're talking about. It's at Mount Burr-Amelis or something like that, I, I want to say. Maybe. It, it's it right near the second half of the game. Yes, no, he only shows up in the second half of the game in a couple scenes, but he seems important because he directly sort of addresses the political side of the story, the resolution between these, the, this war, these uh, two warring nations with uh, Dalmasca, like, wedged right in the center of their of their battlefield. And I, I thought he was a cool design and was saying interesting things about a part of the story that we didn't get a lot of in sort of the main text of the game. But he just sort of comes and goes, and you see him in two or three scenes. And th- Well, he ends up getting killed, to he be does? fair. Yeah, he gets murdered. Man, uh, I by I that either. Yeah, by one of the judges. I'm well, going to say it's the Bronx that kills him, but I mean. Quick Google search. Is the guy Alcid Margrace? Uh, I think I think so, yes. It talks about him in Mount Burr-Omasas and the Silent Maid and all that. I believe that is the person, yes. Yes, yeah. And his hair is as fabulous as I remember, now that, I've, now that I have a quick Google search going, going as well. Yes, the dude does have fabulous hair. Mm-hmm. There's right. no other way to describe it. All right, that's, that's one of the criteria for a good cast, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, FF, FF, honestly, if there, was, if there was a hair battle between these five games, FF12 would win. And, I, and I'm saying oh, yeah. that even in spite of, of Cloud's spikes, FF12 has the hair battle in hand. But, and what about 
Sephiroth's long flowing tresses. Sure, but I mean, have you seen Al, Al Sid's long flowing tresses? <laughs> FF12 has the hair game. I'll give okay. it. That. FF12 has an A plus hair game, and um, and it's also an A plus video game. But the thing that struck me is that when I played it for the first time, is that there's these cool, interesting characters that I wanted to see more of. Like, I, like Gabranth is another example. He is a cool, intimidating-looking villain. The judges in general, um, yes. uh, maybe judges others. Are so yeah, awesome. I mean, uh, Vane's not cool. a judge exactly, but like, like Vane's judge buddies are a dope collection of villains. And yeah. I, I sort of wanted to see more of them because they're if they're they're slightly underwhelming boss fights towards the end of the game. And it, it, I, want, I wish they had done more of an FF14 thing where they make the judges these ominous, cool presences that have real impact when they finally do uh, enter, enter action. Yeah, like, I think FF12 does have cool designs and a cool cast, but, so, like, they, they come and go in a way that made them feel a little fleeting. And I, and I accept your points, uh, your, Nick, on, uh, on why Van and Pinello are valuable cast members, but they still felt more like passengers and less like actors to me. Which Yeah, uh, and I can I agree that. to that. But um, and... who else are we neglecting that's, that's, uh, that, that's cool about FF12's cast? Oh, Dr. I'm, I'm... Sid. Oh, he's, a, he's one of the better Sids. He, yes. My favorite Sid, actually. We have two of the um... best Sids on this podcast in, in Highwind and Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Dr. Sid is actually Balthier's father. Which took me completely by surprise. I thought it was a genius plot twist. They hint at it very early on in the game when they name drop Sid's laboratory, which is uh, Dracler. You find out that he's trying to manufacture Nethocytes, which is basically this magical object, rock. I'm not Every really Final sure. Fantasy game has to have crystals. Crystals, yes. And Dr. Sid, as a character, through Buffier, you realize that he kind of starts to go mad a little bit. And that ties into the nature of the script, which is very thespian and cheesy and wonderful. Dr. Sid is very manipulative. And he manipulates Ash and the party to go to a specific place to see the people. I want to say they're essentially like gods or these beings. I can't remember what they're named. Um, I've played so many games since Final Fantasy XII, the Zodiac Age, and it's hindering my memory. Uh, Look at me, man. <laughs> Sid has this... What, what struck me with him the most is that you have, a, you have two boss fights with him, and in the second one, where he's dying, Bothier tries to reconcile with him, and Sid calls him a fool and turns him away. And that's the last thing that you see of Sid. And I just thought that was such a powerful moment so sad and heartbreaking. I just, I loved it. Loved Sid. Uh, did not love Vane, who I thought was just over the top, laughable. He he was evil because the game needed someone to be evil. He had no real motive. Yeah, when when there's a villain whose sort of only motive is to conquer, and they don't have anything much other than that, it gets a little dry. Like, I mean, I mean, Luca Blights of the World also only want to conquer, but they are extremely memorable personalities outside that. It goes to show, I remember the judges pretty vividly, but I barely remember Vane. And I, I barely and, remember and Vane. I, and, I, and I played I, FF12 seven, eight years ago or so. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, Vane's just a huge letdown. But Sid does make up for it. And his arc, Sid's arc, ties into Vane's arc. Like, technically, Vane has an arc. Sid's really the villain in that game that's important to me. But it goes without saying... Vane has very luscious tresses. His, his, hair game, his hair game is very strong. He's handsome, but he's no handsome Jack. Oh, no doubt about it. <laughs> so, we have discussed the casts of five excellent RPGs today in exhaustive detail with spoilers, and I apologize if someone got spoiled for a 15 to 20 year old game that they didn't mean to, but whatever, them's the breaks. And thank you for spending so long listening to us uh, espouse on these games, listeners. I am Mike Solosi, and this is Retro Encounter. If you want to, inc- if you want to encounter Retro Encounter on social media, the best way to do so is to reach out on Twitter at RPGFanCom, or check out RPGFan's Facebook page, or um, go on the forums on RPGFan.com. 
Let's see. Uh, what do we have planned going forward? Oh, right. This is episode 99, which means one episode after this is episode 100, which uh, I'm very excited to share with you next week. Without going into details, it's sort of... It's a little bit like episode 50 and also a little bit like an, an essential episode from last year. It got a little weird, but it was it's, it's going to be a really fun time, and I encourage you to listen to that episode next week. And Nick was just talking about FF12 minutes ago, and we'll be talking about FF12 a lot later this month, because the September game for Retro Encounter is Final Fantasy XII, and, and it'll be discussed over two episodes after episode 100. So please look forward to that as well. Now, individual stuff. Um, starting with you, Neil, if uh, listeners want to reach out to you, um, either on the forums or social media or what have you, what is the means to do so? I'm Dincrest on the boards. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and Dom, um, your turn. My ID on the forums is DHK, or you can reach out to me by email at domk at rpgfan.com. All right, Hillary. I am ET Fire on the boards and... Please feel free to talk to me about Cadelka or other weird old games. And last, Nick. Uh, I'm Nick Rantzbottom on the boards. Uh, Nick R at RPGFan.com. And you can find me on Twitter at the Ezio Kenway. And I am Monsoon on the boards and at the Real Monsoon on Twitter. And if you email uh, our podcast at retro at RPGFan.com, I am probably the one that is going to answer. Now, and also, you can, before we sign off, please check out the full. Uh, cast and characters feature on RPGFan.com. If it's not on the front page anymore, check out the features section. It has nine segments to it, five of which were written by the five panelists today. Panelists today are, are all review contributors. Uh, Hillary's a proofreader, but uh, Neil recently... Um, didn't you recently review uh, a visual novel that uh, you thought of very highly? Yes, I did. It was called The Last Birdling, and it's one. it was one of... Only a handful of games that legit made me shed a tear. So, oh wow, yeah. <laughs> so, For me, I don't know. That's like the end credits to Lufia Two, and not much else. <laughs> yeah. And Nick and uh, Nick recently reviewed Final Fantasy Twelve. And uh, what, what else have you reviewed recently that appeared on the, that appeared on the site, Nick? Oh boy, We've done RBG Maker Fest <clears throat> episode prompto. I think that's it for right now. And Dom, what was the last thing you reviewed? Because I never keep track of the order things get posted in. Uh, I believe it was a mid-boss, an indie game on Steam that was rather mediocre, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's a better one coming up. They can't all be winners, but uh, yeah, I implore you, please check the feature on the main site and read all of our reviews, listen to all of our podcasts. RPG Fan puts up a lot of great content almost every day. And so, I think... That about wraps it up for episode 99. Thank you, good night, and good luck.